Hello, it's Alyssa Milano, and I can't wait for you to read my new book, Sorry Not Sorry. It's a collection of essays where I share my unapologetic thoughts on life, culture, activism, and motherhood. You'll learn some things about me that I know you've never heard before and share in my story as an activist. This book is such a big part of my heart, and so are you, and thank you for that. Sorry Not Sorry is available now everywhere books are sold. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. The internet is a cesspool of horrible people saying and doing horrible things. So much of the worst behavior is directed at women in an effort to shame and silence us. My friend Nina Jankowitz has a new book, How to Be a Woman Online, and it's an essential toolkit for women to navigate the worst of it, to fight back, and to build a safer internet. Joining us to talk about this, it's something I experience personally, something that when I show my friends the messages, they can't believe that somebody would write something like that. And I think what's probably partially startling about this is that it does become routine. I'm, I am sort of used to it. Even though we we're receiving death threats, they didn't say, we're coming to the bananas to kill them tonight. And that's, they want something that they can act on right away. They need a crime to have been committed. That's correct. I logged into my social media and I got thousands of messages telling me that I'm never going to be able to have kids, I hope my period hurts, um, just things that aren't even associated with football. And I feel I want to share this with, with the people out there because I don't want anybody to be in the situation that I was in. Online misogyny is a global gender rights tragedy and it is imperative that it ends. My name is Nina Jenkowitz and I'm helping women navigate abuse and harassment online. Sorry, not sorry. Nina, welcome back to Sorry Not Sorry. I want to talk about how to be a woman online. But before I do, I want to talk to you a little bit about Ukraine. You're a Russia and Ukraine expert and have spent significant time in both countries. And we're just now getting a complete picture of the horrible destruction and civilian death toll in that country. Can you tell us some of what your thoughts are about what's happening there? Yeah, it's been a really difficult couple of weeks since the invasion began. Ukraine is basically a country I think of as my second home. I spent a year advising the Ministry of Foreign Affairs there under the auspices of a Fulbright Fellowship. and got a lot of close friends who are still in Ukraine because they couldn't imagine leaving. And I think that is such a 
an important thing for Americans to grapple with, right? If we were forced to make that choice, what would we do? And I think we've seen such incredible bravery from the Ukrainian people over the past couple of weeks in the onslaught of this horrible invasion. I think it's really interesting from an informational perspective what has happened and how Ukraine and frankly, its Western allies have been able to push back against Russia in a way that in 2014, when the first Russian invasion happened, we were completely taken aback, completely unaware of how to push back. And I think right now, I would say that we're doing a pretty good job. And in particular, President Zelensky is doing an excellent job in keeping Ukraine centered in like Western consciousness, Western news coverage, and also really providing kind of a center of gravity around which his people can really mount a response. And it's a very human face of leadership that a lot of people, I think, didn't expect from him. You know, I was back in Ukraine in 2019 covering the presidential election that he was elected in. And back then, everybody was like, oh, he's just like, a, he's a comedian. Like, he's Ukraine's Trump. And I knew then that couldn't be farther from the truth because I went and I saw him perform. And actually, as, as a performer, I'm sure you've seen this in certain leaders as well. There's an element to the best politicians of being able to connect with people on that very emotional and human level. And I went and saw a performance that he did as part of his campaign where he was doing like Saturday Night Live-esque sketch comedy. And then he sang a song at the end of the show about loving his country, despite all of its flaws. And it was very incisive about the things that really mattered to Ukrainians that they wanted to fix in their country. And that's when I was like, I think this guy's got something. And, and since then, he's navigated a lot of crises, impeachment, the shoot down, the accidental shoot down of the Ukrainian airliner and Iranian airspace at the beginning of 2019. He's navigated them pretty adeptly. And now we see him on the international stage and he's everybody's crush. And it's because of that emotional human appeal and the power of telling a good story in the face of this absolute nonsense that Russia's putting out there. I just think it's fascinating. And so that's been really hopeful for me. And I think also Ukraine has showed itself to be a really inspirational country where most people couldn't find it on the map before. And now everyone really cares about it. And so in that way, I really think Ukraine has already set itself on the path to victory because it's put itself on the side of good. I'm hopeful about what's going to happen. I think obviously we're seeing these horrible, heartbreaking images come out from towns like Bucha and Irpin. And I think the world is indignant about that. We're not going to stand for that from Russia. And Ukraine certainly isn't going to stand for it. And it might be a long, drawn out conflict, but I do believe in my heart of hearts that Ukraine is on the right side of history and is going to come out victorious. Victorious. What does that mean? How do you think this ends? It seems like from all reports, Putin is both increasingly isolated and seemingly increasingly intent on absolutely leveling and destroying Ukraine. So how does it end? Yeah, I mean, well, now Putin is refocusing his military on the east of the country. And what I worry about is that because that's farther away from Western borders, we're going to say, OK, out of sight, out of mind. That can't happen, first of all, because that region has already withstood so much over the past eight years. 14,000 people died before this re-invasion of Ukraine in February. So we have to keep that in mind. But I think Ukraine is frankly just going to stand up to the test of time. And it's going to force Putin to continue to feed troops and equipment into what is essentially a meat grinder right now. And my hope is that the Russian people are not going to stand for that. They didn't stand for it in Afghanistan. They were not happy about it when Putin did this in Chechnya. I'm a little worried about the informational blockade that Putin has put up in Russia since then. So it's important. And I know you've got a lot of friends who are influencers and celebrities who listen to your podcast. It's important that 
they speak out, that you speak out because you've got followers, you've got fans in Russia. And that informational blockade doesn't really apply to celebrities and to celebrity culture. And I think that's really interesting. We saw Lady Gaga, Arnold Schwarzenegger making direct appeals to the Russian people. Hello, everybody. And thank you for sharing your time with me. I'm sending this message through various different channels to reach my dear Russian friends and the Russian soldiers serving in Ukraine. I'm speaking to you today because there are things that are going on in the world that are being kept from you, terrible things that you should know about. The power is in their hands now to decide what happens with Putin. And I think either, you know, we see an uprising potentially from the Russian people, or at some point they just get tired of their sons and husbands going off to die in war and never hearing from them again. And, And frankly, that's what's happening. They're just leaving, abandoning these poor men over there. And the Ukrainians are the ones who are informing their families that they're either killed in action or, or injured and prisoners of war now. And that's not going to, long term, I don't see how that can work for the Russian people. They can't cut off that much information. And we've already seen some cracks start to show. So that's my hope that the information onslaught toward Russia can bring about some change politically. It might take a while. And I think Ukraine has said, you know, we're going to defend to the last brick, to the last person. We're going to we're going to rebuild as much as it takes. And I think they've got good allies in the U.S. and other Western governments who are going to make that happen when the time comes. Let's shift gears and talk about your book. I'm curious to know if there was a particular incident that made you think that you needed to write this book. So there were a couple of things that really cued me into the world of online abuse. Obviously, a lot of my friends have experienced it. I've experienced it. Ahead of the 2020 election, I had been debunking some narratives about election fraud on Twitter, and I made a video that initially didn't do very well, and then eventually started gaining a lot of traction. And I was like, huh, this is interesting. I wonder why it's doing it. It's because it actually gained traction on the far right, and uh, it singled me out for the worst abuse I've ever experienced over a two-week period in September 2020 in which you know, I was receiving hundreds of tweets an hour that were saying everything from like, you're a CIA operative to sending me pictures of egg cartons, empty egg cartons, saying that my fertile clock was ticking, which is particularly hilarious to me now because I'm pregnant with my first kid. Also ridiculing my appearance, saying things that I was transgender because women who have opinions and are involved in politics can't be not secretly men. That's something we see a lot in this space, all that sort of stuff. So I had experienced it myself, but I'd also seen it, of course, in politics. I had done some research on how gendered abuse and disinformation played a role in the 2020 election. And I had saw our adversaries using it. Russia, China, Iran, all use misogyny online to undermine democracies like the United States. And so this became a really important issue for me. But what really flipped the switch for me was thinking about how young women are self-censoring because of what they see our generation going through online. They look at people like Kamala Harris, the most powerful woman arguably in the world, and the things that are said about her, the responses on Twitter or Facebook to posts that she makes in her historic campaign or during the inauguration. And I think what they're saying is, I'm not going to put myself out there that publicly. And I've done interviews with young women who have said, yeah, that's why I have my account locked down. Like I only have my friends follow me. They're not putting their voices out there. And we need those voices. Our our democracy can't function 
unless we have participation from women across the spectrum, across the age range and young women as well. And I worry that the online environment is just causing a lot of us to not put ourselves out there. And that makes me really sad. And I don't want to stop until women can tweet with abandon the same way their male counterparts do without thinking twice about uh, what they're saying or if they have the energy to deal with the abuse and harassment that will stem from that. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. I do think that there is something very important about protecting yourself online. And if that means for women that they limit who can follow them, I think that's okay. I really do. It's the equivalent of self-care in a way. And I don't want to think that it is limiting them from using their voices. I just think it's limiting the exposure of that. So I think the people who are following certain women, if women feel safe voicing their concerns and speaking out and using their voice, then I think they will. I think they only stop because people are terrible to women online. And why is that? Why do people think that they can treat us this way? And I was going to say men, but honestly, I get just as much vitriol from women with opposing views as I do men. It's different, right? It's not sexual harassment, but it is just as vicious and ugly and dirty. But why? Why? I think it's the lack of consequences, Alyssa. Like we have seen so many people in positions of power in this country, whether it's political power or media power or otherwise, who use these same gendered tropes and attacks on women. And they don't experience any consequences, even in official capacities. Like we've seen some pretty ugly stuff happen in Congress recently with AOC and other uh, politicians, Ilhan Omar, et cetera. Nothing happens to the people who are using those things in an official capacity. Twitter is facing intense pressure to suspend the account of one of former President Trump's fiercest defenders in Congress. Sunday night, Congressman Paul Gosar posted a photoshopped anime video that depicted him, you're hearing this right, killing Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. It also showed Gosar attacking President Biden with two swords. And then online, the social media companies, the worst thing that happens is you have to delete your tweet or maybe your account gets locked down, but they're not doing very much to follow up to make sure that person doesn't create another account. And so that lack of consequence, I think, gives people tacit approval that it's okay. They feel okay doing it. They're doing it from behind their avatar. They don't have their real name attached to their account. Although I have in years past received abuse on LinkedIn where people are very much attached to their real name. So I'm not sure that would solve the problem either. But absolutely, they don't feel any pain from what they do. But we definitely feel that pain. 
Well, when you look at the Senate questioning Katanji Brown Jackson, the way in which that line of questioning went down and how misogynistic and sexist and racist and the dog whistles and there was zero accountability. There was zero of any sort of punishment for how vile that was. And there are people who simply don't believe that women face more or worse harassment, not only in real life, but online than men do. But I want to know, what does the data show? The data shows in the studies that have been done that women receive far and away more harassment. So the Institute for Strategic Dialogue did a study ahead of 2020 that showed uh, they looked at different members of Congress and all of the women received almost twice as much harassment as their male counterparts, with the exception of Mitch McConnell because of his elevated position in the Senate. And especially women of color or women of marginalized identities or intersectional identities receive more than their white female counterparts as well, which I think is really important to underline. So as as risky as it is to be a woman voicing opinion, your opinion online, if you're a woman of color, if you're a woman who is from the LGBTQ community or whatever, you are going to get that much more harassment. And that's something that the platforms aren't responding to. It's something that law enforcement's not responding to. And it's something that people, frankly, push back on. They say, oh, no, everybody gets harassment, whether you're a man, woman, uh, no matter what your background is. It's just not true. The data shows that, again, women receive more and especially women of color receive more. And what have social media companies done? Anything? So there has been some progress lately. I particularly think that Twitter is starting to address this problem. They've changed their reporting structure to be more human-centered, as they say. So rather than needing to know their terms of service and policies, they're asking you about your experience, which is very different than how it used to be. Yeah, but Twitter doesn't even have a, a sexual harassment as an option in its reporting tool. Yeah, no, they call it targeted harassment and then those reports never go anywhere. I know I've experienced it too. It's frustrating because what we found in a study I did at the Wilson Center a couple of years ago with a team of six was hundreds of thousands of instances of harassment on these multi-billion dollar platforms. And they were like, oh, we didn't know this was happening to XYZ politicians. Twitter trolls, prolific, mean, and downright bullies. And the main targets, women, especially ones in the public eye. Now, a new report shows Twitter truly is toxic for women. Amnesty International is calling it a human rights issue and wants Twitter to step up and make some real changes. These are platforms with so many resources at their disposal. And we, again, we're a team of six people. So I think the more pressure we put on them, the needle will start to move. And there have been commitments made. Last summer, there was a UN commitment with the World Wide Web Foundation that all the platforms signed on to and said, we're going to start caring about gendered harassment online. And we've seen some new policies get put into place. But again, I I agree that they're not adequate. The fact that they're addressing it is a start. (laughs) It's not enough, but it's different than where we were when I started this research a couple of years ago. So what do you feel is the responsibility of tech companies and social media platforms to police this behavior? I look at it as protection of users, right? They say they're all about free speech and they're like, oh, we're not going to get into anybody's speech. If they want to harass, they can harass. But that's not true. If somebody were doing this to you on the street, they'd call a cop, right? If you had hundreds of people around you tearing apart your 
every fiber of your being, it would be a law enforcement issue. And the fact that these communities exist and they say it's just a free speech issue isn't true. Whose speech is really being affected here is the woman who's being targeted. And I think they have a big responsibility to their users that they're absolutely not upholding right now. And it's not just in this area. There's other areas of hate speech as well, where they're not upholding their terms of service, where there are explicit rules that aren't being upheld. And so I think what we're going to start seeing from certain countries, and they're looking at this in the UK right now, is the criminalization of this behavior. So platforms are going to be forced to pay more attention to it and to do something about it, because if they don't, they're going to get fined. That's being considered in the UK for various forms of hate speech, including some gendered issues. We've seen some similar things being introduced in the EU. Whether or not Congress will ever put the pedal to the metal on tech regulation, we'll see. But that, I think, is where we're going to start to need to go, because right now it's not in the interest of platforms to uphold their terms of service, because this sort of vitriol It's frankly what a lot of people come for. They come to the platforms to see that, to engage in it. It's part of the business model. Yeah, it's why people watch Real Housewives. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Like they want the abusive drama. You mentioned before that one of the repercussions is women not using their voices. What else, what other consequences of online violence for women are we facing? Well, I think there is a self-selection about the sorts of careers and and public-facing positions that women want to be involved in. I know for a fact that friends in the journalist community won't take on certain stories, won't write certain tweets, won't engage in certain events because of the abuse that they receive. One of the women I interview in the book, Van Badham, who is a, a Guardian columnist in Australia, has to warn the theaters that she works at ahead of time. She's also a playwright. She has to warn the theaters that she works at ahead of time that crazy people might show up and try to attack her. So there are physical implications to these threats as well. They often trickle offline, especially for women of color. And frankly, we see just fewer women who want to be part of the public conversation. It's not just about putting your voice out there, but again, pursuing those public-facing positions, whether that's in academia, sports casting, Now we've seen health become like a very public facing position in the COVID-19 pandemic. It doesn't matter what you do as a woman online in a public facing position, you are going to be subject to harassment that your male colleagues aren't going to be subject to. And so I think we see women choosing different careers, different positions that are going to be a lot less public facing. You wrote about how female journalists face more online abuse than their male counterparts. What kind of abuse are we talking about here? Tell us about some of these messages like I'm talking about. And why do you think women are being targeted more than men? Well, thank you so much for having me on to talk about this. You know, I think the difference in a lot of the messages that women journalists get uh, versus male journalists is that a lot of the comments that women journalists get are sexualized. They're about their appearance. Um, You know, they're more brutal, more violent. It's not just constructive criticism. It goes beyond that. It goes, you know, essentially threatening and, you know, against their own livelihoods, for example. I heard that from college students, from high school students. One of them said to me, quote, I do not want a lifestyle that public because of what she saw. Older women, more experienced women with high profiles and many accomplishments, what she saw them going through online. And that just breaks my heart. Are the same people who abuse women also abusing young women and girls online? Or is it different people? Yeah, I don't have an answer on that. I think I would say what there is a connection between is 
young boys and young men see what older men are doing and and potentially some older women are doing to women in positions of power. And they think it's okay to treat their peers that way as well. It's this trickle-down effect. But I think there are probably instances in our research for the Wilson Center, instances where men were pretty agnostic in terms of their targets. It didn't matter if she was young, old, Republican, Democrat. They used the same tropes, the same tactics, the same gendered harassment and abuse against all of those women. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I want to talk about what we can do about it. Okay, first, let's talk about security. What are some of the things women can do to manage their online security? So there's a a couple of things that I think a lot of people are like, oh, I don't need that because I'm not a big deal. Like I only have 500 followers. Anybody can go viral at the wrong time and you could find yourself doxxed. So you could see your personal information on the internet. So here's a couple of things to keep yourself cyber secure and your physical security intact as well. One, making sure that you're using complex passwords, which I know grown, nobody wants to hear that, but it is really important. If somebody can crack your password, they can get a lot of your personal information. And the best way to do that is to use a password manager. So something like LastPass or 1Password that comes up with the passwords for you and you don't have to think about it. Then make sure you're using two-factor authentication, not just for your bank accounts, for your social media accounts as well, because the worst thing would be for somebody to get into that social media account, your Twitter, your LinkedIn, whatever, and start sending messages as you that could ruin your reputation on a number of levels. So that's really easy stuff that anybody can do that will keep you more secure. A level up from that, if you are having a security incident, unfortunately in the United States, we have a market for personal information where the world knows the last time you put a new roof on your house, They know what airlines you prefer. If you like a window or aisle seat, last time you went on vacation, your address, your voting record, where your mom lives, all this stuff, right? So people can get that for a pretty small fee. The best thing to do is to sign up for an anti-doxing service, Delete Me, for instance, which will, for you, for a fee, scrub all that information from the internet. You can do this yourself. It is time consuming for those of us with jobs and kids and whatever. I I can't imagine having the time. They save hundreds of hours. What I would recommend is if you are employed, try to get your employer to pay for that, especially if you're in a public facing role. They don't often think about this, (laughs) that they, you know, put us in positions because we're engaging with the public as a part of our job that put us at risk. But that's an ask you can make. So that's another easy thing to do in terms of physical security. And then thinking about how you're engaging online. One of the examples I give in the book is that today, because of geolocation and like how savvy people have gotten online, even 
what you think are really innocuous details about your life can be used to track you down. They posted our address, where we live. You were taking all that seriously? Yes. Once my address was posted, that that was it for me. They go to the State Department because, of course, China's gotten involved. They go to the FBI, they go to their local police, but federal and state law enforcement, they don't really have any answers because the law is not written that way. Say that I get tapas on Tuesdays with my girlfriends and I post a picture about that on Instagram. If you look at my author bio, you know that I live outside of Washington, D.C. My Twitter sometimes shares things from Arlington County, Virginia, where I live. Stuff about voting or COVID vaccines, whatever. You could know that if you followed me for a long time. And so then you can look up tapas restaurants in Arlington, right? And let's say there's seven of them. You look at my picture that I posted and say, okay, the menu looks like it's got this on it or like looks like it's at this restaurant. And you can track me down and show up to my next Tapas Tuesday. That's really scary. So things like pictures of your house, pictures of your pet with their tags on it, which often have your address and phone number, even pictures of you out with friends in the moment can give a lot of clues about your pattern of life that people can use against you. So you have to be two steps ahead of the baddies in that way. And what about legislative policy? What needs to change to make a real dent in this behavior? I know you've been a real proponent of the Violence Against Women Act um, and its reauthorization. I think when we're thinking about things to add to VAWA, we should think about online violence as well, because as I said before, it often trickles into the offline realm, especially for women of color. They're often doxxed. They often have people uh, who call in bomb threats to their houses and SWAT teams show up at their door. Things like that are extremely scary and have effects not only on the woman, but on on her family and loved ones as well. So thinking about violence in an online way, I think, is something that Congress needs to start to do. And then also equipping law enforcement with the tools and, frankly, the capacity that they need to deal with these threats. We have some units at the FBI who deal with cyber threats and things like that, but it often doesn't rise to the occasion of them actually taking action unless there is a physical threat to the individual. But I don't understand. I don't understand why it's so hard to get law enforcement to pay attention to online violence. I know someone who received messages saying, I want to watch your daughter die. And law enforcement claims that just isn't a threat. So like, where is the disconnect? So for local law enforcement, and I'm not defending them, I just think it's the fact of how things work. Because their jurisdictions are at the local level and then you've got the state level, they're not sure if these threats are coming from somebody in their jurisdiction or somebody over state lines, in which case it becomes really difficult for them to deal with. And they don't have the skills, frankly. So one of the quotes in in the book from another researcher that I included was that she spoke to a woman who said, "I, I went to the police about these threats I was getting and it was like I was telling them I was drowning, but they didn't know what water was. They they just don't have the expertise to understand what the threat means to somebody who's being threatened online. And there's often, not just among law enforcement, but among people in general, this idea of don't feed the trolls, just turn your comments off, lock down your account, don't go online. But the online world is increasingly part of our real lives, especially during COVID, especially for somebody like me whose research exists online. I can't turn my Twitter off. I'll lose opportunities and I can't do my work. So that's true for a lot of people. 
So I think we have to find some way around this and train up law enforcement so they understand what water is and also make sure that the actual legal body that exists of legislation is equipping them to respond. And right now they don't have those responses. And that's what other countries are starting to do and what I hope the U.S. will start to catch up with soon. The whole book is so important. Thank you so much for writing it. I feel a bunch of emotions because the book has to exist because of the behaviors of men. What can men be doing about this situation? I think the most important thing for men to do is to be active bystanders online. So one of the things I try to do is educate on my profile. If I receive something threatening or gross or whatever, I'll take a screenshot. I I take out the person's avatar and handle because I don't want to amplify the abuser. And I let people know that it's happening. And I've had so many men shocked that this happens. And they want to, they're like, let me at them. Let me yell at them. I'm like, no, what you can do instead is next time you see something like this, and it's everywhere online. Next time you see something like this, don't just be a bystander, be an active bystander. Report that tweet, report that account. That gives an important signal to the platforms that something is wrong in their ecosystem. And it takes time, but that sort of signal is really important. And then also, of course, educate the people around you, right? Educate your sons, educate your friends about the comments they make and why they're not okay. It's interesting. I was uh, speaking with one of the women I interviewed in my book about children, our children. And she has a little boy and she's like, I don't know if I would want my, um, my son to read some of the things that have been said about me. And this book has been in gestation, you might say, for most of the time I've been pregnant. And so I think about that a lot. What I'm going to tell my little boy, when I'm going to tell my little boy about the things that people have said to his mom. And I think it's important that he hear them someday so that he can be a better advocate and ally for the women in his life when he grows up. And what gives you hope? What gives me hope is the community of women that I've found supporting me and some men too through this process. Without them, when I was going through some of the worst trolling, I wouldn't have known what to do with myself. So even though in these interviews for the book, I had to hear some really hard things that have been said to people that I I really admire and care about. We've got each other's backs. And the fact that, let's say 50 years ago in the 70s, sexual harassment in the workplace was extremely rampant. And now we've done a somewhat of a job of cracking down on it. It's a lot less acceptable now than it used to be. I'm hoping that looking back on this in a couple of decades, we will have figured out how to stamp out what has become way too normal in the online environment and uh, push back against, about, against online harassment as well. Well, I have your back. I have your back too, Alyssa. Thank you for all you do and for being a part of the podcast. My pleasure. They talk about our bodies. They talk about our weight. They talk about, you know, what kind of makeup we should or shouldn't be wearing. We experience it on playgrounds. We experience it on workplaces. We experience it on our social media feeds. This isn't only something that happens to conservative or liberal women. It's not something that only happens to white women. It happens to all women who are in public life. We look forward this evening to introduce the Violence Against Women Act, which I'm the lead sponsor with over 150 co-sponsors. Seriously, men, what the fuck? What is it about you that makes you think you can treat women the way you do? What in the world makes you think that your genitals allow you to harass women? They're not impressive. They're not imbued with any special power or divine right. What makes you feel free to treat women the way you do? 
I really want to know. I'm really asking. And before you say not all men, look really closely at yourself. Are you Googling for leaked nudes or paparazzi pictures of women? Do you stand up to other men when you see them harass women? The last president of the United States was elected after he said he walks up to women and grabs them by the pussy and brushed it off as locker room talk. Do you let the men in your life speak that way around you? Do you speak that way around them? Have you sent pictures of your genitals to women who didn't explicitly ask for them? Online spaces are not different from in-person spaces. Your behavior online is reflective of who you are. And for so, so many of you, your behavior online shows us that you are complete garbage people. We live in a world where we need a book like Nina's. Where women need a guidebook to survive in a digital world that men make dangerous for us. If you don't see how enormous a problem that is, it's because you are the problem. Do better. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our producer is Ben Jackson, audio editing and engineering by Maciej Lewandowski, and music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bulliari. Don't forget to rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry. Not sorry.